Uh, again, my name's Kyle, so if you came in late, then there you go. Um, we have been in a series through uh, going through the book of Jonah. We're going to wrap that up this week. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn them to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, it comes in between two really small books. It's a small book itself, but it comes between Obadiah and Micah. Um, it's in the, the, the collection of minor prophets section of your Old Testament. Um, so anyway, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, so far, what we've done in Jonah, I'll just kind of recap the weeks for you. The first week we got together, we talked about the pursuing love of God. And so we looked at the story of Jonah, and one of the things we came away with, particularly in chapters 1 and 3, were that God has more ways of lovingly pursuing us than we have of running from Him. Praise God for this truth, that He chases us down. The second week we got together, we talked about the fear of the Lord and what that looks like, that the sailors feared God in one way. Jonah said he feared God, but he was running away from God. And so we feared him in ways that that a little bit contradictory. And so what we said is that there's a genuine fear of the Lord that Christians ought to possess, that we ought to have. And that genuine fear brings both wisdom and life to our lives. When I say life, I mean eternal life. And then the final, uh, not final, but last week what we looked at was the steadfast love of God. And what we said about God's steadfast love is that it transforms our hearts, but it also enlarges our hearts. And that kind of is going to lead us into what we want to talk about today. And so in those things, what we've maintained is this overarching theme of Jonah, that Jonah is not mainly a book about morality and man's obedience and disobedience. It's not just about a fish that swallows a man because he was being disobedient. In fact, what we saw last week is that the fish was actually God's way of lovingly saving Jonah, that, that it, it reached him at the depths of the sea and brought him out. And so, uh, but in Jonah, what we see, the overarching theme is that God saves both the missionary and the mission field, that God is working in all people's lives, that he is after their hearts, and so that he's loving and merciful towards people. And that was what we walked away with. That's what we've been trying to walk away with each week as we come back to Jonah. And so what lies ahead of us today is a look at God's mercy. Now, the main point of the whole book is that God is merciful to all people, to all kinds of people. And so Jonah learns a really tough lesson in Jonah chapter 4, and it's meant to make us reflect. The way that it ends is like a cliffhanger. It's, a, it's one of those to-be-continued episodes that never has a beginning, right? It's like, we're just going to leave you on this. I really hate movies that end that way, but that's the way Jonah ends. And so Jonah learns this tough lesson, and it's meant to make us reflect on our own hearts to, as we think about God's mercy and the way that we respond to God's mercy, but also the way that we uh, reflect God's mercy as His image bearers. And so before we get any deeper into that, can I please pray for us, our hearts, our time together. Heavenly Father, we are glad to be in Your presence. We are grateful to be here with the Word of God opened. We know that these words are, are not just uh, black letters on a white page. These are the very words of Your Spirit. That these are, these are pinned for us, for our edification, for our usefulness in gospel ministry. That they're pinned in a way that they'll pierce down to uh, the middle of our hearts. And so, Father, we ask now that you would reach us where we are with this message. God, that you would help us to see your mercy as beautiful, as life-giving. And Father, we ask that you would help us uh, 
to, to, to be open, God, to what you say to us today. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be fertile soil, uh, that your word would be planted deep within them and that it would bear fruit in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a quick recap of Jonah, kind of one through three, it would be this, that God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. He sends Jonah to a place called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh uh, was an Assyrian city. The Assyrians were uh, enemies of God's people, Israel. And so Jonah is a part of God's people. He's a Hebrew. He's not interested in going to Nineveh. And so Jonah flees to this port city called Joppa. Now, in Joppa, what Jonah is doing is he's looking for a boat. He wants to get out of there. And so he, he, he finds some sailors and he asks them, hey, where are you headed? They said, we're headed to Nineveh. I'm sorry, we're headed to Tarshish, and he's like, Tarshish, hmm, is that close to Nineveh? He's like, no, it's, it's the opposite direction. It's in the totally opposite way. And so uh, Jonah's like, great, can I catch a ride with you guys? Can I, can I join you? I'll pay you some money if you'll let me join you. And they're like, yeah, sure, come on. So Jonah gets on the boat. Well, while on the boat, God sends, the Bible tells us that God sends a storm, that he causes a, a great tempest to come up on the sea. And the sailors in that moment are freaking out. I mean, they're hurling stuff overboard. They're trying to get rid of things to make, more, uh, to make the boat lighter and maybe a little easier to navigate the storm. Uh, and so they're trying to row to dry land in that. Uh, and then they're appealing to their gods. So each of them is like they're pagans. They're calling out to various gods, asking for help, pleading for help, uh, to which, you know, they don't answer. Because that's what false gods do. They don't answer you. And so what they begin to think is, what about Jonah? Where's he at? What's he doing? Jonah was down below sleeping. And he's resting. Like he's having the time of his life in the storm. And so they go down to Jonah like, why are you sleeping? Wake up and call out to your God that he might save us. And then they cast lots to see who it was that the storm was for. Like, why did this storm come upon us? And it lot lands on Jonah. And so Jonah reveals, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord who made the dry land in the sea. And the, the sailors are, fear, uh, are full of fear in that moment. They understand in that moment, as Jonah's revealing to them, that this storm has come upon you because I'm running away from God and he's not happy with me. So like, why have you done this to us? What can we do to make the storm stop? And they're like, he says, just hurl me into the sea. Jonah would rather commit suicide at the hands of other people than he had go to Nineveh and preach to souls which he thought weren't deserving of God's mercy. And so the sailors say, we're not doing that. And so they continue to just try to row as hard and as fast as they can to no avail because it says that God made the storm rage even more. And so now here they are in the middle of the, uh, middle of the sea, the raging storm all around them. And they finally, at the end of their rope, they pray to God. And they ask Him to forgive them as they're about to toss Jonah into the sea, that He would not hold them accountable for Jonah's life. And so uh, they toss Jonah into the sea. The storm ceases in that moment. The sailors make these sacrifices and these vows to the Lord as, they, as they, they've encountered the real God. And then God, uh, and then Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea, as we read yesterday, uh, yesterday, last week. But even there at the bottom of the sea, almost out of breath, almost dead, he wasn't out of God's reach. God sends a fish to swallow him. And from the belly, we see in Jonah chapter 2, a prayer of thanks. And Jonah recalls the events of sinking down into the sea, the weeds being wrapped around his head, being at the base of the mountains, the bottom of the sea. 
And so he's laying there and this fish swallows him. He's in the belly of the well and he, or the fish and he's, he's thanking God for saving him. He too in that moment makes vows to the Lord. And so God speaks to the fish, the Word tells us, and the fish vomits him out onto dry land. Then we read in Jonah chapter 3 these beautiful words for all believers. It says, The Word of the Lord comes a second time. That the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. That even uh, disobedience in the first moment wasn't more than God's mercy. And that's one of the things we talked about in week one. That God has more ways of, of lovingly pursuing us than we have of running for Him. And that there are second chances with God. That He's offering His mercy over and over. And so the word of the Lord comes a second time. Go to Nineveh. Warn them of their coming destruction. And Jonah listens. He, he goes to Nineveh. He says, yet... 40 days. This is his sermon, guys. Like this is, this is what all churchgoers wish for. It's just something that's short and sweet. But he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then he turns and walks out of the city. And what we read there is that the Ninevites believed in God in that moment. That they began to repent. And that the king of Nineveh called for a time of repentance and mourning with sackcloth and ashes and the whole nine yards. And the Lord looks at their repentance and He relents from His destruction. And then we read here in Jonah 4, verses 1-11. through 11, It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? But this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that You were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The Lord is asking Jonah, are you mad, bro? Like, he's wanting to know what's, what's going on here. And it says that Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? I love this. I mean, it's sad, but I love it. And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. It just sounds like a pouting child, right? And, and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's how the book ends. That's the end of the book. There's this massive, like, come to Jesus moment with God here in Jonah, right? He's, he's, he's kind of, he's telling him how it should be. And he's appealing to him in a way that's, that's really quite profound. But as I read that, what comes to mind for me is, isn't Jonah just the worst? I mean, like, he's awful. He's supposed to be God's prophet, and he hates people. Like, he hates people. He was more worried about a vine growing up over his head and then withering 
and not having the shade and his own comfort anymore, so much so that, that he didn't care, he didn't, he didn't rejoice at all about these people coming to the Lord. And, and so Jonah's like the worst. There, there's really no redeeming qualities, as far as I can tell, about Jonah. But then as I dig a little deeper, you know, kind of think about the book and what it's saying, what I realize is that God is as merciful to Jonah as he was to Nineveh. That God is showing an unending mercy towards Jonah in the same way that he showed this unending mercy towards Nineveh, which is amazingly good news for every single one of us, that God is merciful. And the overarching theme of this book and of today's sermon is this, is that God's, God is merciful and God's mercy is his to give. So if you're taking notes, you can write that at the top of your notes. God's mercy is his to give. And so I'm going to dive into a little bit of what I mean by that. But what we're saying and what we're seeing here in Jonah is that God is rich in mercy. He, he's abounding in mercy. He's rich in mercy. It's His to give, and He is a big spender. Praise God. He's not withholding it. He's giving it. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming minutes. And so the, the problem is that we tend to be more like Jonah than God. And that's what really began to settle my heart is I'm, I can be more like Jonah in withholding God's mercy than I am like God who is freely giving away God's mercy. And so we tend to, to monopolize God's mercy, I think is a good word here. So Jonah said, I do well to be angry, but he couldn't prove it. God began to ask questions and Jonah has no answers for him. But God says, and he proves, I have a right to be merciful because there's people there. People who I've created, they're there. And so God is saying to Jonah that my mercy is mine to give. You don't get to dictate who it goes to. He stores up his mercy and he unleashes it on whom he will. There are at least two implications of that truth from this text for our lives. The first is uh, kind of presented as a negative. It's we must not monopolize God's mercy. So again, if you're taking notes, you can write that there. We must not monopolize God's mercy. Jonah did nothing but monopolize God's mercy. So like rather than take God's mercy to all, namely the Ninevites, Jonah flees. He, he desires to die. He gives this half-hearted sermon. He sits outside the city and is still kind of hoping that destruction will come. He's waiting for God's wrath to pour out on them. He was angry with the Lord. He said he was so angry that I would like for you to kill me. And then he becomes angry about this vine which he had nothing to do with. It was a gift from the Lord, and he's angry about it. But he didn't think the Ninevites deserved the mercy of God. And he says as much. He says, this is why I ran. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful. So he thinks the mercy is for someone else, but not the Ninevites. They're not deserving of it. And so Jonah kind of begins to monopolize God's mercy. It's, it's for me. And so as far as Jonah was concerned, mercy was only meant for him. It was only meant for Israel. It was only meant for God's people. And as long as God limited mercy giving to Jonah or to the people that Jonah approved of, then Jonah could get along happily, especially as long as it was being poured out on him. I mean, don't think he wasn't grateful laying at the bottom of the sea for that fish to swallow him and him to still be alive and to eventually spit out. Like he's grateful for God's mercy in that moment. It saved his life. But he didn't want. He, God wrecks Jonah's monopoly of mercy by sending him to Nineveh. 
And he sends them there to warn his enemies of a coming destruction because of their sins. The Bible, uh, Jonah 1 tells us that the sins of Nineveh had come up before the Lord. It was like an aroma to him. Their sins were so awful, it was almost like he could smell it. It's kind of the wording there. That had come up before him. And so God wants to send one of his men, one of his prophets to Nineveh, that they might be warned and saved. But Jonah says, man, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to be that guy. I don't want to see them repent from their sins. I don't want to see your wrath relinquished from them. I want you to pour it all out on them. I mean, I want hell. I want fire. I want brimstones. I want lightning bolts and tornadoes. Can you do the locust thing again, God? Like, that would be great. Like, let's just devour everything about them because they're awful. And he's angry. And he's angry with God over it all. And so God wants to teach Jonah that His mercy is meant for all kinds of people. No matter how evil we may assess them to be, God's mercy is for them. And so He's teaching Jonah that His mercy is to give as He pleases. And Jonah can't stand it. It's eating him up. He wants to die. Jonah's more angry about the withering plant than the perishing souls of Nineveh. And that's a problem, guys. How many of you know it's a problem to be more concerned with our comforts than people's souls? A couple of you. Cool. (laughs) We can start a church that way. How how many of you are like, yes, it's bad to be so interested in my comforts that I don't give a dang about someone's souls? Can I get a witness? Man, like I think we can agree on that. As Christians, we ought to understand the value of a soul, the value of people. And, And so what Jonah is learning here from God as he appeals to him, I mean, God stoops down to like even appeal from, from the point of view of the cattle, right? He says, should I not pity Nineveh, where there are 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from their left? Now, there's differing views on whether that means children. It could, but it most certainly means people who were morally bankrupt, who were spiritually bankrupt, right? They don't understand the things of God. That's what God's describing. They're, they're ignorant of these things. He says, should I not pity Nineveh where there's 120,000 people who are morally and spiritually bankrupt? And he says, and also much cattle. I mean, this is like a... This is one of those moments where the word of the Lord reaches out and kind of um, lovingly taps a believer on the backside. Like, get it together. Get it together. Like, what are you thinking? What, what God is asking Jonah is if not for the people, what about the cattle, Jonah? Surely, surely the cattle are worth saving. I mean, you got so angry about a plant, surely you think an animal life is more valuable than a plant life. And friends, we can't read that with any indifference in us. We, we, we can't look at the Word of God here and just say, this doesn't matter to us. That, that I'm not that person. Like, I, I'm, I'm okay with my enemies being saved. Like that's not what the Bible's trying to teach us here. It, 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 what the Bible is showing us, I think, is that are we not also guilty of loving worldly comforts more than the souls of mankind at times? Maybe all the time, but certainly at times. Like, like we get more worked up over sharing space with homosexuals in our workplaces, in our families, in our schools, etc., than we do over the state of their souls. Like, like, and that's 
really only one example. So here's a couple more. As parents, we become so outraged by the behavior of our children that we fail to understand that there's an opportunity right there before us to show God's mercy to them, to show them the grace of God, to give them an encounter with Christ Himself in the way that we respond. It doesn't mean that you throw discipline out the window. It means you hold a biblical view of what discipline is, which is far more than just spare the rod, spoil the child for your information. And so another example is with our spouses. Our, spouse, our spouses can frustrate us more than anyone else. Not mine, though. She's perfect. Uh, more than anyone else at times. And, and we can spend, we can respond to them in the most selfish ways, right? Like with no regard for the mercy that we've received in Christ. We just respond selfishly towards our spouses. Like you did something that offends me, you're, you're demanding something of me, you're asking for something of me in this moment that I'm just not willing to give, and so you're a turd, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Right? I mean, we, we just respond in those ways so quickly. We're, we're so quick to selfish ambition that we forget about God's mercy. We forget about what we've been shown. And so the danger of monopolizing God's mercy is this. In James 2.3, we read that for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Ouch. He goes on to say that mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus says in, in His sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, that with the same measuring rod or the same measuring stick um, that you use on others in doling out judgment, God is going to take that one and use it on you. I mean, just that text alone makes it very obvious that it's far more advantageous for us to be merciful. Because Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's a promise from the Lord that if we are merciful toward one another, towards humanity, that we'll receive God's mercy. And so I think the second implication of the text today is that First, we must not monopolize God's mercy. But second, we must become ambassadors for God's mercy. We can't sit on the sidelines quiet about God's mercy. We can't go on unaffected by God's mercy, living our lives as though God's mercy doesn't matter to us one bit. Like if God has saved you, you've been saved by His mercy. And if you've been saved by His mercy, you are expected to be merciful. We must be ambassadors for mercy. We ought to be the ones talking about mercy the most. God asked Jonah, it's just this resounding question that's kind of been rolling around in my head over the last couple of weeks. God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? I just think about in my life all the times I'm outraged by unbelievers or by fellow Christians. Do I do well to be angry or would I do well to show mercy? To be merciful towards those. In, in other words, God is asking us, are you mad, bro? What are you mad about and is it working out for you? It's kind of the Dr. Phil question. How, how's that working out for you? You know, I mean, that's, that's the Dr. Phil question. Is this well for you? Do you do well to be so outraged by my mercy, Jonah? So, so clearly, God sought to teach Jonah a lesson by sending him to Nineveh. God, God wanted Jonah to learn that mercy is his to give to whomever and whenever he pleases. 
Titus 3.5 tells us this. We, we believe this verse wholeheartedly when it's about us. He saved us, not because of righteous works that we had done, but because of His mercy. It's Titus 3.5. Now when that's read about us, we're like, praise the Lord, I'm going to sing. I need a praise break right here, right? But when that's read about people that are our enemies, when that's read about people who we disagree with, when that's read about people who have differing spiritual beliefs than we do, when it's read about people who are attacking us, we're like, uh-uh, not on them. No, He's not showing mercy to them. They deserve God's wrath. Well, what makes us so self-righteous that we think we deserved anything but God's wrath and yet received mercy? It says not by your own works of righteousness, not anything you did. God showed mercy. You were saved by that. So let us seek that for others. What Titus is telling us, what God is showing us in Jonah is that to the ones who have received God's mercy unto salvation, mercy is required of them in their dealings with other people. All humanity was created in the image of God. This is Genesis 1, right? God created them in His own image. And so, therefore, mankind is equal in value. We're not less in value. We're equal in value in the most precious ways. Like as Christians, we are to become ambassadors of mercy to all people since, I hope, we understand that we are image bearers of the Lord. That this is what our Bible is teaching us. That we're image bearers of God and that we've received mercy. And so we should pray for, we should be ambassadors for mercy from our Lord. And so we begin to see those things. Romans 10, 12 tells us that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's good news for us because I don't think, looking around, that any of you are Jewish. Nineveh, not Jewish. Not of Israel. It's great news for us that God shows no distinction between Jew and Greek. That He is about saving souls. It says that He shows no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches, His mercy, on all who call on Him. So what's the requirement to receive God's mercy? It's that you call on the Lord. That's it. There's not this get yourself together. There's not this clean yourself up and then call on the Lord. There's not all of those things which we might be preconditioned to think. It's that you call on the Lord and you will receive mercy. What a promise. What a promise. Even as believers, what a promise. If we'll call on the Lord, we'll receive His mercy. I think that when we've received God's mercy, when we realize there's no distinction between differing peoples, that God shows mercy to whom He will show mercy, that that begins to transform the way we see all people. That we can't simply be, uh, see people as problems any longer. We don't regard them according to their problematic ways, but rather we see them as people whose hearts haven't received God's mercy unto salvation yet. And so therefore, we become ambassadors for mercy. We, we want to show them mercy. So those people in our workplaces who we differ with, who we, get, we, we argue with, we, we're, we're, if we got into any conversations about spiritual things, we're going to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. What we must reconcile in our hearts and resolve to become 
is that we've received mercy, we reconcile that, and so we resolve to show mercy. We, we resolve to be loving towards them. We resolve to tell them about the merciful hand of God which reached out and saved us and can do the same for them. We should have hearts that are full of compassion toward the most rebellious sinners, a heart that has received mercy, spies mercy in every situation. And so a true Christian is a spy. A true Christian is to be looking for ways to show mercy. Tim Keller, um, former pastor, now kind of in the, I guess, the theologian ranks, he says that mercy isn't just the job of the Christian, that mercy is the mark of the Christian. Many of you will recall Jesus in John chapter 13 saying that the world will know that you are disciples by the way that you love one another. That's the point of Jonah, guys. The point of Jonah is that God's mercy is his to give and that he expects his recipients, Jonah, to become ambassadors of the same mercy which they have received. That they would go and show it, live it out. And so how then do we balance God's mercy and God's severity? Like Kyle, I've heard you talk a lot about God's mercy, but we also know that God's severe in sin and the way that He deals with sin. Absolutely He is. We need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. A guy named Russ Ramsey said this. He said, the Christian faith doesn't center on a mercy without severity. And it doesn't center on a severity without mercy. The Christian belief system, the Christian faith centers on a divine love that marries mercy and severity at the cross. That those two became one. That at the cross, God poured out His wrath, His severity on His Son so that He might pour out His mercy on all mankind. And so the two are married at the cross. Which challenges us yet again. If your version of Christianity, the way that you live out your Christian faith is more quick to become outraged by outside sinners or fellow Christian people, then it may not be Christ who is at the center of your beliefs. It is very likely that what you've done is mixed Christianity with your own selfish ambitions, and you've created a bastard child of Christian faith. And we must be careful of that. What we've created in that is a deceitful belief system that has blinded you and it's made your heart hard towards people whom you are more like than you care to admit. And we must not be that way. When God sent Jesus Christ, it says that He sent Him to show love to all the world. For God so loved the world, meaning He loved all peoples. This was no longer just about the Jew. It's no longer just about Israel, as you see all throughout the Old Testament, that something was changing. That God wanted to make a way for all people to come to Him. So the book of Jonah ends with this question from God for Jonah, but it's also a question for us. Again, I'll read it. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The question goes unanswered, and it goes unanswered so that it may challenge the reader for many generations. From generation to generation, this text has challenged the beliefs of Christians. And it challenges us today with these questions. Who are you withholding mercy from? Who are you counting your own comforts as more important than their lost souls? 
Why would you do it? Is it because of differing political beliefs? Is it because of differing religious beliefs? Is it because it's a broken relationship? It's someone who's harmed you or you've harmed them? Is it just an egregious sinner? All right, you know, the people who sin different than us, they're the egregious ones, not us. That's sarcasm, by the way. We're all egregious sinners. All of us. Remember, God's mercy reached out to you, though, as Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your sins following the course of the world. So that you were following the prince of the power of the air, talking about Satan, that you had been deceived by that spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says we were all that way before Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're that way now. Remember that that's who you were, and it was at that exact moment of disobedience, of rebelling against God, that God intervenes with His rich mercy and great love, saving you by His grace, as Ephesians 2.4 says. Lamentations 3.22-23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. At the cross of Christ, the world showed its true character in murdering the perfect God-man. And let us not think for a second that if we hadn't been there, we wouldn't have murdered Him also. But God showed in that moment, his true character and pouring out rich mercy to all those hateful, spiteful people that they may be saved. Romans 5.8 confirms this. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's not waiting till you get cleaned up. In fact, you'll never get clean enough on your own. You will not be clean without the washing of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so, Richard Sibbs uh, a great Puritan writer, he said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. What this means for you, so if you're an unbeliever in here today, if you're a believer in here today, I want you to listen for a moment. What this means is that you have no sin too large for God's mercy. That that God is rich in mercy, it's His to give, and He's a big spender, y'all. Like, there's no sinner who has ever depleted God of his mercy to where he would look at another sinner and say, hold up, I, gotta, I, gotta get some th- I, got, I need to replenish the bank account here. It's a little low. You should have seen the guy that came in before you. He was dreadful, most awful. But I'll get to you in a moment. No, anyone who cries out to God will receive mercy. It's never ending. It's never, he, he never runs dry of mercy to give. Thomas Goodwin, another Puritan writer, once said, Your sins move him more to pity, think Nineveh, than to anger, think Jonah. Praise God, that's true. That's the story of Jonah. That's the story of our lives. And so I say, let's lay down our worthless fig leaf attempts to hiding our true selves and flee to the mercy seat of the Lord where we may receive true mercy, lasting mercy, and salvation for our souls. Amen? May we do that. And as far as this church goes, as far as these people here at New Life Community Church go, would you pray with me that God's mercy and not our false posturing would become our identity. It would become what we're known by. You see, our American culture, which is full of cruelty towards one another who are different than us, can display a counterculture of God's mercy 
all the more clearly because of the dynamic of our culture now. So let us not get caught up in the wrong culture, the wrong beliefs, the wrong thoughts. All the things of this world are fading away. The one thing that stands forever, that is above all and in all and through all comes from Him is Jesus Christ. If you're standing in anything other than Jesus Christ, you won't be standing on that last day. We must stand on Christ, on His mercy. And what that means for us is that we're sojourners in a land that is not ours. That our, our allegiance isn't first to our country or to our political systems or to what have you. Our allegiance is first and foremost to Christ. And so if our country goes the way of Satan, as it most certainly will, we stand for the Lord. We trust the Lord. We fight for mercy. We fight for peace. We fight for the love of Christ to be shown to all mankind. And in the meantime, we fight for our country. I'm not an anti-America person. <laughs> I love this place. But my allegiance is to the Lord and to His kingdom, not this kingdom. I think the Lord's calling Christians, calling you new life, to a greater purpose. He's calling you to become ambassadors for His mercy. My question for you today, the question that leads, le leaves us at the end of Jonah, is how are we going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to God's mercy? To His call to be an ambassador of mercy? I'll give you some time to think about it. Would you stand to your feet?